Father in heaven, we come before you because we need you. We're dependent upon you as we open your word that you would be our teacher, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts. We thank you for the promise that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray, Father, that as you peace, you all, as you pierce, you also bind up. As you show us our need for you, you meet that need in Jesus Christ. You apply Jesus to our hearts and lives by this Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that whatever it is that we need as individuals and as a church, we would feed off of you through this means of grace as we come to worship you. So illumine our minds and our hearts now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, our scripture reading this morning, the passage upon which the teaching is based, comes from Genesis chapter 3, as we are beginning a series of sermons between now and the Christmas season, uh, going on Advent. We are looking this morning, we're going back almost to the beginning, not quite all the way to the beginning, but close. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 8, and I'm going to read, it's a little bit of a lengthy uh, passage, but I want us to take in some of the details here as we look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are entering that part of our church year, that part of the church calendar that is known as Advent. Advent is the period of four Sundays between Thanksgiving 
and Christmas Eve. Advent is all about preparation, anticipation, remembrance, hope, and promise. As a writer, his name is Justin Holcomb. He's an Episcopal priest, and he had this to say. He wrote this about Advent, actually something I found to be a very helpful article as we enter into that time of the church year. He wrote, Advent symbolizes the present situation of the church in these last days as God's people wait for the return of Christ in glory to consummate his eternal kingdom. The church is in a similar situation to Israel at the end of the Old Testament in exile, waiting and hoping in prayerful expectation for the coming of the Messiah. Israel looked back to God's past gracious actions on their behalf in leading them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And on this basis, they called for God once again to act for them on their behalf. In the same way, the church, you and I, during Advent, we look back upon Christ's first coming in celebration, while at the same time we look forward in eager anticipation to the coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. In this light, the great Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, perfectly represents the church's cry during the Advent season. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. While Israel would have sung the song in expectation, looking forward to Jesus' first coming, the church now sings the song in commemoration of that coming and in expectation of the second coming in the future. When the kingdom will be completed, the end of time will be consummated, and we will live in the life of the world to come in the new heavens and in the new earth. Remembrance and anticipation, promise and hope. These are the elements that sum up for us the meaning of Advent. Waiting and hoping. Waiting for what Jesus is going to do. Hoping in the full assurance. What is faith? The full assurance of things hoped for. For what we anticipate. We're going to start in Genesis. And as we go through, we're going to unfold the mystery of Jesus Christ. And I want to paint for you a picture. I'm not a good painter and I'm not a good artist, so I'm going to do my best to paint you this visual picture. And it's only an illustration, and illustrations are always imperfect. But I want you to picture an oak tree, a giant oak tree, strong and mighty, able to withstand the forces of nature, ravaged by decades of storms, and yet still able to give shade and able to give rest to those who come under it. But now how did that oak tree begin? It began as a little tiny acorn, invisible to the eye, seemingly insignificant, invaluable, growing a little bit year by year, decade, decade by decade until it becomes the mighty oak tree. May I suggest as we unpack the unfolding mystery of Christ, beginning as a promise, 
in the opening pages of Genesis, where God promises, after the disaster of the fall, I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says to the serpent, and between your offspring, which literally means seed. Beginning as a seed, growing, unpacking, seeing the beginning of the mystery, seeing as we open the pages of the Old Testament, that the mystery is threatened. See how the mystery is sung in the worship book of the Psalms? Until you get to the Gospels, and the Word became flesh and resided, and tabernacled, and made his dwelling amongst us. And then finally, after the incarnation, and the life, and the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension, you have what? You have King Jesus ruling and reigning from the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Advent is about remembrance and anticipation. And what I want to do this morning, so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Genesis. We're going to look at Exodus next week. We're going to look at the Psalms. We're going to trace the unfolding mystery all the way through to the New Testament. This morning, we want to set the scene. And to some degree, we have to do the bad news before we get to the good news. The good news this morning is in that form of an acorn. Verse 15, and we'll go over that. I will put enmity. But we have to understand the scope of the bad news. The narrative setting, if you would, from which the entire Bible becomes unpacked. What is wrong with us and with the world is the question that Genesis 3 answers. You know, when we get to, if I can just give you a quick aside, when we get to the New Testament, Peter in his first letter instructs Christians. So tells us, here's how he is applying the mystery to the church. And he says, Christians, you need to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, I'd love to talk to Peter and say, "Um, you're making an assumption here. There's an assumption that we're asked on kind of a daily basis why we have the hope we have. That's probably a different sermon for a different time. But if you're never asked, why do you have this hope? Why do you face suffering with such a poise? Why do you look at it and you truly lament? You weep. You cry. You're honest. You don't sugarcoat anything. You're real. But yet, you still confess Jesus is Lord. You still embody Jesus is Lord. I see you growing in what's called the fruit of the Spirit. What? If you don't have people going, you're an odd duck. What's What's up with you? Peter says, be ready to give an answer to those who question you, who ask Why do you have such a powerful hope? How are you able to look, live in the presence with the guarantee of the future? And part of the answer, see, giving people that answer includes explaining to them what the Christian worldview is all about. Questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What was I made for? What is my purpose in life? What is wrong? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with the world? And what is the solution? Is it a solution I have to come up with? I hope not. Or is it a solution that someone from outside the universe has broken into history with? See, the Bible answers these questions under the categories of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation answers the question, who am I and why am I here? I am. This is 
Fundamentally, I'm a creature, meaning I am made in the image of God. I have value and dignity and worth because I reflect, I'm like a mirror reflecting the beauty and the glory of God. What is wrong, though? I am guilty and I live among a people and a human race that's guilty of mutiny. We've taken the gifts that God has given us and we've rebelled. We have committed a coup. We've committed a tyranny. And as such, there's something wrong with us and there's something wrong with everything about life. And that's what we're going to look at in Genesis 3. But that only sets the stage for the unfolding of the mystery and the fact that God does not give up on humanity or on his creation. God is committed to his creational purposes, and so he redeems a people with the promise of restoring all of creation. There will be one day, this is the anticipation and the promise of Advent, God will renew all things. And he's inviting us as his church to join him in the renewal of all things. This morning we want to set the stage. We're looking at that little sliver known as the fall and the consequences of the fall. And we want to look at it from two perspectives. We want to look at the comprehensiveness of sin, the scope, and it's a wide scope. The best I can do is give you an over, I'm going to frustrate some of you, I'll tell you that right now, because there are a lot of details. Genesis 3 is a sermon series, not just one sermon in itself. But I'm giving you just one sermon, so it's an overview on the scope of sin, the comprehensiveness of sin, and the commitment the radical commitment of God. One writer put it this way, talking about the comprehensiveness of sin. He says, the effects of sin touch all of creation. No created thing is in principle untouched by the corrosive effects of the fall. Whether we look at societal structures such as the state or family, or cultural pursuits such as art, technology, or even bodily functions such as sexuality or eating or anything at all within the wide scope of creation, we discover that the good handiwork of God has been drawn into the sphere of mutiny against God. The whole creation, Paul writes in the New Testament, has been groaning, is subject to bondage and decay. Let's look at it from three different kind of categories, if you will. Let's look at the spiritual and the psychological that comes out of that. We'll look briefly at the relational, the social, And we'll look at the physical and the cultural. In other words, something's wrong. If I can put it this way, here's the comprehensiveness or the scope of sin. Something is wrong with our relationship with God. Something is wrong with how we think about ourselves. Something is wrong with our relationships now with others. And something is wrong with the entire world. You want to talk about the corrosive effects and consequences of sin? As this writer says, there is not one aspect of creation that hasn't been touched. Which, let me give you the good news. That means when it gets to salvation, that means there will not be one aspect of creation that God does not restore. So even as you hear this bad news, this is one of the tricky things about Advent, is you're called to have a little imagination. It's very difficult to just kind of go outline one thing at a time, because you have to keep in, in a sense, the whole. We have to look back at the corrosive effects of sin To then look forward, if you only do that, you're going to fall into despair. But you want to then take that and have it propel you forward so that you are caught up in the glory of the promise. We're not talking about just salvation and being whisked off to heaven. But God will restore everything. 
That is absolutely wondrous and beautiful. And I want you to, what did the hymn say? Come and worship Christ, the newborn king, who God said, this is what makes the words, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be wondrous. The bad news, spiritual alienation. Look with me at verse 8 and what it says in verse 8. And verse 8 is disastrous because remember, they're creating the image of God to have fellowship, communion, partnership with God. I'm not going to teach a whole lot on what the image of God means, but the image of God, I've used the illustration before, that God has set up the world to be his home, to be his temple, his sanctuary for him to dwell with, and that he has his image bearers to be, and I use the illustration of a toolbox. God's the architect, he's the foreman, he's the one building everything, and he has hammers and nails and saws and whatever other tools there are, and we're the toolbox. And the image of God means that we've been given the vocation of managing God's world as God's representatives on God's behalf. Meaning we are priests and we are vice regents, meaning we represent, we're ambassadors for God to run God's world for him. And we were created to do that in utter partnership with God. That's why I love when the text says, and God was walking with them in the garden in the cool of the day. I would love to know what that looked and felt like. Are we going jogging now, God? Are we going down to the pier to take a look at the beach? What are we doing now, God? Walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day sounds awesome, doesn't it? But then some of the most tragic words that you will read to hear this is verse 8. And they hid themselves from the Lord and from the presence of the Lord. Created to live in partnership and communion and intimacy with God. We're not talking hiding as the sense of the fear of the Lord. We're talking terror. We're talking spiritual alienation and psychological shame. Spiritual alienation. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and instead of being drawn to him, anticipating him, communing with him, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. It's one of the things, if you think about what redemption is all about, Matthew chapter 1 tells us Jesus came to save his people from their sins, and when they named the baby, what did they call him? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Just as one of the consequences of the fall was being terrified, being fearful, avoiding the presence of the Lord. Redemption is Jesus has taken upon himself everything that would keep us separate from God so that now he can be God residing, God in our neighborhood, God tabernacling, God dwelling with us. That means there is not just in the prey of practical application. That means there is not one moment of any day that you ever have to face alone, in the midst of pain, in the midst of loss, in the midst of, see, that's the meaning of the now and not yet. We live in a lot of not yet. We still suffer disease. We still suffer loss. We still suffer rejection. We still suffer betrayal. But the now is Emmanuel, is God with us. And because of the beginning of the mystery that I haven't gotten yet to yet, we don't have to hide from the presence of the Lord. We don't have to hide. His presence can become a comfort and a relief, a power and a strength. Not only a grace that brings 
forgiveness, but a grace that brings transformation. The spiritual alienation, though, also leads to, remember I said psychological alienation. They hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. Isn't it a shame they feel like they have to hide? Now, one commentator points out, he says, even though the word shame isn't used here directly, it is certainly seen here. They hearken back to chapter 2, verse 25 in Genesis 2, where the text says they were both naked and unashamed. And then they say how this verse is the opposite of that. Rather than being naked and unashamed, free and vulnerable, able to be exposed and just be completely themselves, totally at ease with themselves. One commentator says shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. One of the most disastrous effects of the fall is that we don't, and I'm not talking about self-love in the sense of love yourself autonomously, independently, apart from God, but a sense of being grateful, of knowing who you are in God, of knowing your value, of knowing your worth, and being at ease from yourself. Shame is that sense of a complete unease so that you're afraid of being known. You're afraid of anybody really seeing you. You're always feeling like if somebody knew me, if somebody really knew me, they wouldn't like me. That is one of the most disastrous effects of the fall. And psychologically, because of that shame, they're also not able to know themselves. Adam and Eve hide from God out of a fear or terror of God, not that sense of awe and wonder. And as one commentator points out, while on the one hand they sense they're now unfit for the presence of God, their understanding of the reason for that being their sinfulness, completely escapes them so that they don't even have a proper knowledge of themselves. So one of the things, again, spiritual and psychological effects, looking at the scope of the comprehensiveness of sin, we're not able to see our own desperation for God. We're not able to see our own need for God. We need, once again, God to take the initiative. And one of the things we see is that when God begins to regenerate a sinner, he gives them some semblance of self-knowledge. Regeneration begins with a sense of knowledge of your own sinfulness, knowledge of your own misery, knowledge of your need for someone to swoop in from the outside to save you. But part of the sadness, the tragedy of sin is it binds us to really know ourselves. And if you can't know yourself, you can't really know others. Look with me at verse 12 and 13. Again, I said this, this real brief. But if you look at some of the social or relational aspects and tragedy, effects of the fall, they go from blindness and self-justification to hostility, anger, and blame-shifting. Verse 12, God asks the Adam, and how does Adam respond? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Now, I love this. He's blaming all over the place. There's obvious blame to the woman. It's her fault. But there's really subtle blame. God's, God's messing with, or Adam's messing with God here. I love how he puts the woman whom you gave to me. Like, God, you kind of gave me a flawed creature. 
you messed up here. You kind of, what, what were you thinking, God, with that whole go to sleep, out of the rib stuff? You kind of messed up here a little bit. And I'm not defending Adam, by the way, if you're wondering what I'm doing. Adam was completely, there's a complete fragmentation in relationships. I guarantee you one of the things that will never ever work in relationships is blame shifting and defensiveness. Just to give you again practical application, if there's strife, if there's struggling, if there's awkwardness, if there's tension in a relationship, even if you're 99% right and the other person is 1% right, which I'd bet that even money, that almost never happens. But if you're 99% right, let me give you a word of advice. Enter into the 1% where they're right. Enter into the 1% and enter into... See, one of the things we have to absolutely guard against, and wouldn't it be great if the love of God... Think about that verse we read earlier in our confession section, the words of encouragement, where the Lord is a mighty one to save where he rejoices over us with gladness. He quiets us by his love. Wouldn't it be great if we were so secure in his love that his love could quiet our getting in the next word, defending ourselves, showing the other person where we're right, always saying, but you You know how many times we do that in conversations? It's almost like we're on the edge of our seat, just so... Imagine if we could be abiding and resting in the love, knowing we're secure we're safe, we're loved, even if we're 99% right. How much more unity and union and intimacy would there be if we entered in and go, tell me how my, I came across to you and that made you feel. Even if deep down you're going, it's only 1%, I'm 99%. Imagine if the love of Christ could comfort us and we could abide in it, be quiet by his love. But see, you don't see that happening here in Genesis 3. The woman that you gave to me, God, your fault. You did this to me. I didn't mess up the world. You did this. Fragmentation. So God turns to the woman. The serpent. See, you do have three different parties here. You have God, you have humanity, and you have the serpent. And she goes and blames. But you have a relational mess. What's wrong with us and the world? Something's wrong with our relationship with God. Something's wrong with our relationship with ourselves. That being wrong causes that defensiveness, causes that anger, causes that... And I know, we go, I get angry. I'm not... Mm, be careful. A lot of us are angry people. We don't just get angry. We are angry. We're defensive. We're fearful. We're anxious. We have addictions. All of these different things come out of Genesis chapter 3. And then lastly, there's physical and cultural ramifications. Look with me down at verse 17. Now God's going to speak to Adam and he says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
Now, it is very important when we read this to remember the teachings of chapter 2. Chapter 2 gave us the dignity and the beauty of work. And work itself is not being cursed here. What this is saying is that just as sin has spiritual, psychological, and social or relational consequences, sin also affects us physically and culturally. Remember what I said earlier. Part of being, who am I and why am I here? I'm an image bearer. And I was created and given a vocation. And by vocation, I don't mean your job. That's your role. Vocation is your calling to be an image bearer. Listen to how one commentator put it. He says, the image is a vocation, a calling. It is the call to be, and he uses the illustration, he calls it an angled mirror reflecting God's wise order into the world and the praises of all creation back to the creator. He writes, this is what it means to be the royal priesthood, looking after God's world on God's behalf as the royal part. You are the representatives of the world called to manage. That's why family was created. That's what, what the purpose of justice is all about. You're called to manage, be stewards of God's world. God has placed his kingdom, his world, his temple into your hands, into the church's hands to take care of and to run, empowered by him. All this by grace. But that's what it means to be an image bearer. And then to sum up creation's praise, to do it as an offering of praise, is the priestly part, which is why we are called a royal priesthood. And Peter again calls the church what? You are a royal priesthood. Hearkening back to that original creational purpose in Genesis 1. But now, as a result, see, before the fall, the, the direction was simple. Before the fall, God ruled over man who ruled over nature. And now you see the whole thing turned upside down. Now it is God over nature, over man. The dust of the ground wins over us in the end. Or does it? Look with me at verse 15. And the radical commitment of God. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the Lord's words, first of all, to the serpent. And one of the things I love about here, you want to talk about salvation by grace right away at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And this is where, this is acorn form. Adam and Eve had to be going, what? What are you going to do? How are you doing this? This is why I'm calling this a mystery, an unfolding mystery. But look at the good news of this. The Lord doesn't say to the serpent, serpent, I'm going to strengthen these two. I'm going to give them a whole lot more moral ability, moral rectitude. And you know what? They're going to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They're going to get it together. It could take them a while. They're going to get it together, and they're going to finally be good enough to earn acceptance. No. Pretty much, he says, Adam and Eve, step, step aside here. He says, I will put enmity. You know what he's saying to the serpent? He's saying, you picked a fight with the wrong guy. <laughs> he goes, I, everything is a mess right now. Relationship between mankind and God is fractured. Relationship between man and man is fractured. 
relationship between man and nature is fractured, but guess what? I'm swooping in from the outside. You want to talk about radical commitment from God? I will put enmity. Promise. Bank on it. Now, as we go through this series, you're going to see it threatened. Next week, we're going to look at Moses and the whole threat to those newborns and everything. I mean, the story of God unpacks, and there's drama on every page. And you need to be asking yourself at every point, what is going to happen to the promise? And you see at every point, God's radical commitment. As one commentator put it, he says, human sin has blocked God's purpose for creation, but God hasn't gone back on his creational purpose, which was and is to work in his creation through human beings, his image bearers. He has not gone back on the plan. He's radically committed to the original plan through his true image bearer, Jesus the Messiah. He has rescued humans from sin and death in order to reinscribe his original purposes, which include the extension of sacred space, what was originally the garden, extending it into all creation until the earth is indeed filled with God's knowledge and glory as the waters cover the sea. The acorn, the beginning, when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, that word offspring literally is the word seed. And in the Hebrew, it is a singular. It means the ultimate triumph over sin and all its consequences will come from an individual. And that individual eventually is Jesus Christ. Now notice what else it says, because it says how it will come as well. There will be enmity. There will be warfare. This is a cosmic warfare going on between the family of Eve and the family of the serpent. And the text says we learn here that this individual who eventually becomes Jesus will defeat the serpent utterly, cosmically, and completely. He will crush his head. That's a little bit what I think Tolkien was getting at in The Lord of the Rings. When Gandalf said to Sam Gamgee, yes, everything sad will become untrue. Everything sad. Physical, cultural, spiritual, intellectual, social, relational, everything sad will become untrue. Just as sin touches everything, Jesus' crushing of the head of the serpent will be so total and so complete that everything will be restored. The renewal of all things. Yeah, I want you to see the corrosive effects of sin, but I want you to explode with the glory of restoration. But it will come at a cost. Yes, he will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. On the cross, the heel of Jesus is bruised. The victory of our salvation is accomplished through the self-giving, the sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ, vindicated in his resurrection, triumphant, don't ever forget the ascension, where he is ruling and reigning. How do we experience the reality of the Lord your God is with you? He's in your midst. He's a mighty one to save. He quiets you with his love. He rejoices over you with gladness. He is a singing God who exalts, doesn't just sing, exalts, I mean, you think you go nuts over a football game? We don't even touch 
the singing God exulting over his church in loud singing. Why can God do that? Because he accepts the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Restoration, victory, and hope is by grace alone. Have you received that grace? And my Christian friends, are you living out of that grace? If you are, why are you so defensive? Why so angry? Why so addicted? Why so having to be right all the time? If you live by grace, explode in a life of love to God, to neighbor, to others, and to a world that needs that hope. The world does not need fragmentation, division, strife, hostility, and hatred. The world needs true, secure love. Unfold the mystery. Begins in an acorn. You know what? And we're in that mighty oak tree now. That's why Advent is looking back and looking forward. Do you have that hope? Father, thank you so much for the pages of Scripture that just give us this narrative of what you have done your radical commitment to us. Father, sometimes words just escape me as to how wonderful and beautiful your restoration, your promise of restoration is. Forgive me and forgive us that we don't have more hope and help us to be a people of hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.